You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. Because of the introduction and success of Pete's Wicked Ale, they came up with a brand new category of beer called American Brown Ale. So it's kind of really, really great feeling that I started a company and I created a whole new style of beer. Pete's Wicked Ale founder Pete Slosberg. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Welcome back to For Pete's Sake Week on Now I've Heard Everything. All of the interviews I'm featuring on the podcast this week are with a gentleman named Pete. Now, you know, it's not many entrepreneurs who can turn a hobby, what is essentially a hobby, into a multi-million dollar business. But one guy did it. In 1986, he formed, along with a partner, he formed Pete's Brewing Company. His name was Pete Slosberg. And together they created a brand called Pete's Wicked Ale. Well, Pete's Wicked Ale became hugely popular, and before long, Pete Slosberg was putting his rocket science degree to work actually making beer. You'll hear more about that in just a moment. Now, there's also a connection to another company that has really been in the news a lot lately. You see, Pete's Wicked Ale had a mascot, and that mascot was at the center of a legal battle they had with none other than Anheuser-Busch. You'll hear about that in just a few minutes. I met Pete in 1998 when he wrote a book about his entrepreneurial experience. So here now, from 1998, Pete's Wicked Ale founder, Pete Slosberg. To me, there's a lot more to beer than what's in the bottle. And this comes from a really weird perspective. I never drank beer till I was 29. And when I tried to home brew, I discovered what beer can really taste like. And I got excited about beer once I tried beer. When you make it with the traditional ingredients using traditional methods, you get color, taste, and aroma in beer. And that was really missing from the American public since pro- the end of Prohibition. And home brewers like myself started producing home brews. And then some wild and crazy guys, some of us, started companies. And I started Pete's Brewing Company in 1986. Now, I wrote the book because... I get a real kick out of going around talking about beer to a variety of audiences all around the country, spend 150 days a year on the road, um, trying to dispel myths about beer, make beer more approachable, make beer more interesting. There are a lot of terms people hear about beers, beer, you know, lager, porter, stout, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. People are confused by it. So in my beer talks, I make beer real simple. I created a chart that I can make anybody a beer expert in under 10 minutes. And I've overlaid that beer education with terrific stories that come from the world of beer. I spend a lot of time in libraries and archives researching beer history, and I find fascinating stories like phrases like, mind your P's and Q's, yes. <laughs> which comes from the pub owners of Old England. When the crowd got rowdy, they'd yell out, mind your pints and quarts. Uh, one of my favorite phrases is doing things by a rule of thumb. And this phrase, rule of thumb, comes from brewing, And the perspective on that is when you make beer, you crush grain, put it in warm water, put hops in, hops are a spice, and you boil it. Now, what the brewer has to do is ferment that. They add yeast to this liquid. But if they add the yeast when the liquid is too hot after boiling, Mm -hmm. it'll kill the yeast. If the liquid cools off too much, the yeast won't propagate and do a fermentation. So there's a window of temperature where yeast works. Well, the thermometer wasn't invented until 1760, so prior to the thermometer, brewers learned when to put the yeast in by putting their thumb in the cooling liquid, and when it got to body temperature, 
they knew it would work. It's sort of like when you're giving formula to an infant, mm -hmm. you put it on your arm, and when it feels like body temperature, you know that's good. So rule of thumb literally means when it feels good, do it. <laughs> so Which is many people's whole reason for drinking beer in the first place. When right. it feels good, do it. <laughs> and, and the audiences uh, that I talk to, they love the beer simplification. They love the wonderful stories that come from the world of beer. And everybody asked for more and more. And uh, I figured, let's try to put it down on a book. And uh, when I put that together, then I thought uh, people reacted really um, with with encouragement to the fact that here I was, a 29-year-old, never drank beer, home-brewed, and then seven years later started a company, and now we've become the second largest craft brewer in the United States. So there's a whole story about how life can change and you can either go with it or not, or take advantage of things. So it's the whole entrepreneurial study of how I grew the company. What would you be doing if you weren't in the brewing brewing business? Uh, I have a degree in rocket science. Uh, never used it. Uh, had an MBA and then worked the corporate life. Worked for Xerox, IBM, and had terrific jobs. But when the opportunity to literally get on the ground floor of a new industry, because in the mid-'80s, this craft beer revolution was just starting to get off, and what my friend and I wanted to do was create world-class beer, and our beers have won gold medals all around the world. But what we wanted to do was treat the beer seriously, but not ourselves. We wanted to have fun with it, and that's our differentiation. A lot of people make great beers. We make great beers, but we want to have fun and be known for having fun with it. So uh, we've it's been a 12-year labor of love. <laughs> what when when you've got a period like the one you have the 80s when everybody seemed to want to get into the act. There's a shakeout eventually. The people who aren't really serious drop out. The people who are serious stay in. What separates the people who were serious from the people who decided, well, maybe it's not for me after all? So, yeah, we are in, a, in an era of super saturation. And we believe you have to have a great beer. You have to support it, though. We have a great name. The Pete's Wicked name has worked really well. We have great artwork on our labels. But we also support the beer with our wholesalers and retailers. So it's not just produce a great beer and they'll come running for it. You have to treat it as a business. How did you become wicked? When we, Maybe you, not you personally, of course. Well, we met you. No, just <laughs> kidding. What we wanted to do to show that we had some humor and we didn't want to take ourselves too seriously, my buddy and I listed adjectives on a board to see what, what fun adjective could describe the beer, and nothing worked. Then we heard a comedian, Bob the Bobcat Golfweight, uh, do a routine on a San Francisco radio station, and he yelled and screamed, wicked this, wicked that. And we loved it so much, we said, perfect adjective. And, and <laughs> we went with it, and we love it. What's with the little dog? I mean, this looks an awful lot like Spuds McKenzie. Oh, good question. When we had the original label, uh, we wanted to get people's attention when they walked down the beer aisle. And I was a big fan of English Bull Terriers. And uh, I thought they were the greatest-looking dog in the world. My partner thought... She was the ugliest-looking dog in the world. <laughs> but between us, we thought, why not put a dog on the label? Be, be unique. And we put Millie, my bull terrier, on. And about six months after we started selling the beer, uh, my buddy Mark was over my house, and we were watching David Letterman, and Spuds McKenzie was introduced to the country. And we thought, my God, <laughs> how can they have the same bloody idea as we did? But we were first. Well, it turned out about a year later, we got a letter from St. Louis saying, it's come to our attention that you have a bull terrier, it's causing confusion in the marketplace, get rid of the dog. Well, our lawyers wrote a letter back, and it took about another year, year and a half, when we got another response from St. Louis, Anheuser-Busch, saying, no problem, keep the dog. <laughs> so we thought, hmm, that, that kind of confirms that we were first. 
But also, if they have no trouble with our keeping the dog, maybe we should have trouble with them keeping their dog. <laughs> and this is a case of, of you, you dream up a business, you have a great time doing it, but there are all sorts of things that can complicate it. And we could have gone after Anheuser-Busch. At the time, our lawyers told us, because we only sold our beer in California, the best we could hope for would be to keep spuds from being in California. Also, even if we got that far, we lose our company in legal legal uh, fees. So we thought, are we in the legal business or beer business? So even though we were first and we were right, you can't fight big companies because <laughs> of their, their money. Um, so we went to a new label, our new Wicked Ale label that replaced Millie. Then uh, th that year won the Clio Award for the best beer label in the world. So it wasn't a bad trade-off. <laughs> yeah, you really, with that answer, you anticipated my next question. Well, you do have to realize when you're, what, what, what your main aim in life is. And your main aim in life at that point was not to be suing people. That's correct. We want to make great beer and get it out to more people. After this short break, Pete Slosberg explains how beer making really is rocket science. Now back to my 1998 interview with Pete's Wicked Ale founder, Pete Slosberg. People think uh, it's very difficult to go out and start a company, and it is. You have to have passion, you have to have money, you have to have a whole list of things. But you, you have to run it as a business, and uh, it's pretty critical. You asked before what will keep some companies surviving mm -hmm. and others not when you have uh, too many uh, companies in one segment. And the reality is those who brew a good product uh, but support it, with all their customer levels, whether it be wholesalers, retailers, or customers, those will tend to survive more than ones who just make beer and and uh, hope people will go get it. Well, that's the thing. As, again, as coming back to what you said, too, you can have the greatest business organization in the world, finest salespeople, finest marketing, but if the product they're selling and marketing doesn't live up to it, <laughs> you're right. going to go bust sooner or later, so you've got to have a good product to start with. And the other thing is you have varied taste around the population. Some people like dark, some people like golden some people like sweet and bitter and what we've done is to offer a variety of beers not just one beer we started out with one but now we have a variety and wicked ale is a dark beer a brown beer and what's fascinating about that uh here i didn't drink brewed a beer that i liked and then people liked it so besides starting a company which has become relatively successful it turns out in the judging community because of the introduction and success of pete's wicked ale they came up with a brand new category of beer called american brown ale so it's kind of it's kind of really really great feeling that I started a company and I created a whole new style of beer. Now we also have a brand new beer which we call ESP Lager Extra Smooth Pub Lager, which is a golden beer. So it's fun to have a variety to offer the public. Uh, yeah, they might like one or two, but that's okay. You know, I don't like every beer in the world either. Uh, but it's fun to have people experiment, and that's what our whole craft beer revolution is. It's allowing people to have alternatives to this bland, mm -hmm. light beer that existed for so long. But you do uh, something else that you mentioned in the book that I wouldn't even have thought of. It's a good thing I hadn't gotten into any of this before. I did the, before you told me, there's a big difference between brewing three or four gallons at home, three hundred or four thousand or fifty thousand gallons in a brewery somewhere. Right. Uh, I mentioned before I have a degree in rocket science, and and I like to say it doesn't take rocket science to make good beer. And it, and it doesn't. Uh, beer's been around for 10,000 years. You can imagine nomads wandering around the Middle East. I mean, they made they made beer. It's not that difficult. To make beer consistently taste the same is rocket science. It's extremely difficult. To brew beer, there's a lot of chemistry going on. And a lot of the chemistry is subject to minute 
changes in temperature. You can change the uh, the heat, uh, the, the temperature of the water by literally half a degree or a degree, and the com the uh, resultant beer will be different. So as you brew five gallons at home and, and start building real production equipment, um, each piece of equipment uh, keeps the heat of the water at different temperatures. Like you heat it from the bottom, well, the top is going to be a different temperature than the bottom. But you want, what you want to try to do is control it to fractions of a degree, and it's very complex to do that. So every time we got new equipment and the equipment got bigger, we had to reformulate the product to make it taste the same. And that's where the, uh, there is rocket science in, in brewing. Not to make a good beer once, but if you want to make it over and over again, uh, it's incredibly difficult. Sure, because customers are going to open a bottle you know, each week, and they're going to expect it to taste exactly like the last one they had. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't, there's something wrong. <laughs> and you can't put that little uh, thing, like my ex-wife used to knit, and there was a little warning on the label that says, Different dye lots may be of diff slightly different colors. You know, you can't put it on a beer like, well, different uh, different batches may have a slightly different taste. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Well, it's it's amazing that uh, for wine drinkers, they expect well, yeah, exactly. wines to yeah. change, and yet they want their beer to taste exactly the same. Now, for those wine drinkers out there and beer drinkers out there, I always get asked the question, which is more difficult to make? And, of course, being a brewer, I, I adamantly say... Uh, beer making is more difficult, but there's a perspective on it that a lot of people don't realize. To make wine, you have to get a sugar, a sterile sugar solution, and God made it. It's called a grape. For brewers, you have to start with raw grain and go through five major steps to take grain to become a sterile sugar solution. So just to get to the same starting point takes an awful lot of hard work. It's a wonder you can even do it at all. Well, practice, practice, <laughs> yes. practice. <laughs> and sampling, sampling, sampling along the way? Well, we have a... Uh, oh, you have to understand how, how difficult this looks for somebody who didn't take his first beer until he was 29. That's right. Know? Well, uh, sampling is, is uh, one phrase for it. I like using two other phrases. One is called quality control. You can never test your quality enough. And the other is having a job position in our company called inventory shrinkage expert. <laughs> You sound like you're having a lot of fun with what you do. Well, I had great jobs in uh, the corporate life, but this is uh, literally living a passion, and it's it's fantastic. And I, I almost get the feeling I don't you know maybe your stockholders wouldn't want you to hear you say this, but I almost get the feeling you'd do this if they didn't pay you. Um, <laughs> you, you need not answer if you don't want to, but I just <laughs> no, I I get excited about. It. I spend 150 days a year on the road. And I have wife and two kids at home in California, and I hate being away from home. But what keeps me going, literally, having worked at other companies, is when you work for a big company, you, you work on something, and you never know who uses it, how they use it, and whether they even like it. And yet when I go out on the road and talk to people, and somebody comes up and, and they say, God, Pete's Wicked Ale, it's one of my favorite beers in the world, or is my favorite beer in the world, and you think to yourself, my God, I had an impact. And... and that gets to your point. Would I do it for free? Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, wonder, I wonder, are you also like something of a cult hero? I mean, there was somebody here in the office who uh, earlier today was saying, is that Pete's Wicked guy? Is that? And I said, yes. Oh, wow. Well, to some people, maybe I am. I put my pants on one leg at a time. <laughs> um, but it's, it's fun. I, I pinch myself to think that, uh, you know, taking a hobby and, and making a company and... Uh, Having people enjoy it, 
that's uh, that's a satisfaction that not everybody gets to have. Not long after our interview in 1998, Peach Brewing Company was acquired by the Gambrinus Company, which discontinued the Peach Wicked Ale brand in 2011, citing poor sales. And you can find an Amazon link to Pete Slosberg's book in our show notes or at our website, heardeverything.com. And heardeverything.com is also where you'll hear my 2001 interview with the former CEO of Maker's Mark, Bill Samuels. We still today, we dip each bottle by hand in the red wax. They've all got the distinctive drip of the individual that dripped them. And we've been fortunate that we've developed a following around the country, at least in the restaurants. And my 1994 conversation with cookie entrepreneur Wally Famous Amos. I love selling cookies. <laughs> I love eating them, making them. I love everything about chocolate chip cookies. There are millions of people that identify me in cookies. I've created a lot of goodwill. That goodwill didn't belong to Famous Amos. It belonged to Wally Amos. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And thank you so much for listening. Next time, as we wrap up for Pete's sake week here on Now I've Heard Everything, the Persian Gulf War made him a television star. But his experience as a war correspondent is much broader and deeper and richer than that. My 1994 conversation with former CNN correspondent Peter Arnett. I had the privilege of going into the battlefields and uh, reporting on what I saw. I didn't have to listen to a commanding officer talk about action. I was seeing it. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.